Thanks, Santino. Bless you, mate. It is uh, always good to be back with you. We really have enjoyed our time. We've just been around for a few hours, really. Came yesterday afternoon. We've got so many friends and family here that we, uh, we never have a problem with anywhere to stay, or, you know, things to do. <laughs> we, we, we love coming back, and it, it really is good to connect with you in different ways. We don't always remember everybody's name. <laughs> we try, but uh, we've obviously got nearly the same number at Winchester. I, I tend to go round preaching a lot more nowadays than I used to, so I then get engaged with people. I was at Portsmouth last week and East Grinstead the week before. So apologies if I forget, but I, I, I love you to say hello, don't worry. And, uh, it's great to greet, greet old friends and you. This morning, I'm gonna, we're going to break bread after I finish speaking. And I'm going to look at quite a challenging subject. I hope you had a good, strong cup of coffee. Uh, I'll try not to be too complicated, but it's a very important subject indeed. And um, I believe God's put it on my heart uh, for us this morning. Uh, Quite honestly, it's something I've looked at on and off this year. We've been looking through Hebrews in Winchester and... uh, I've been living with some of the challenges in that book, some of the, uh, what they call the warning passages. And uh, I believe God wants to speak to us individually and together. I believe ultimately you will find it, I hope, encouraging, but it's also got a challenge in it for every one of us, young and old. If you're a new Christian or been a Christian 40, 50 years, uh, it, it, it has application for you. And if you're not a Christian at all, I trust you'll listen and by the end, we'll be able to embrace the good news of the Gospel. Let's read. We're going to talk about the danger of drifting away. And uh, if we put the title up, we're going to read those four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, that's what we'll read to start off with. And uh, I'll read it to you in the new, in, uh, new International Version. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's not my subject this morning, but I just think it's interesting, just tucked away in that simple passage, the Gospel has always come with signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's the full deal, the full Gospel. It never has missed out on that part. And we never must drift away from that, that the Gospel is not just about uh, faith in Jesus and just something internal and mental. There's the impacting of the Holy Spirit. There's the power of the Holy Spirit goes with it. The signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit, all part of the Gospel. But actually this morning it's verse 1 I want to focus on as I talk about don't drift. Uh, thank you. Turn to verse 1. It's the next screen I think. We must pay more careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians, to people who are followers of Jesus, who say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and have some ways committed themselves to him. So it's a challenge for all of us who claim to be Christians. 
And the first thing we're going to learn from that verse is that there is a danger of drifting away. There is a danger of drifting away. It's a real danger. You can drift from church. You can drift away more seriously, although it's still important to go to church, you can drift away very seriously from Jesus and from a clear faith in him as your saviour. You can drift away from God's purpose for your life. You can drift away from all the wonderful benefits of salvation and no longer be enjoying the many things this great salvation has provided you for, for you. It's drift that is the most great danger and it's drift that can ruin any of us. We can drift back to old habits and associations. Now what was happening with the Hebrews was that they had been saved out from Judaism with all its rituals and laws and with the temple worship and the priesthood and they appeared to have understood that that was all past and now everything was in Jesus Christ who'd fulfilled all those promises of the Old Testament and was the reality of them. But under pressure of persecution, things had got pretty difficult if you were a Christian at this time. Interestingly, if you were a Jew, you were probably still all right because the Romans weren't persecuting the Jew- Jews. They, they, they understood they were a sort of tolerant, tolerated ch- religion. But they were persecuting Christians. And under the pressure of that, many of these people, these Christians, were beginning to drift back to the old way of doing things, drift back to the temple, the rituals, the laws of the Old Testament. Following Jesus seemed too dangerous, in some ways too radical, and uh, didn't seem very safe or very understandable or demar- and seemed too demanding. So they drifted back. So you can drift back to old traditions and rituals and safer ways of doing things. You can drift towards the flesh, if we like. You can drift into sin. You can uh, indulge your body when it cries out for things that you know that you, you shouldn't do, the easy pleasures of the flesh. They're short-lived and they have a terrible payback, but you can drift back into them, just relaxing, just, it won't matter, let's just uh, indulge ourselves here for a moment and you drift back. You can drift through busyness. Life is very busy. I think it's incredibly busy today. I think we're supposed to have more time, but we seem to have less time. There's so many different ways you can communicate and different information, bombarded it, at it from all angles and we can just get too busy. And maybe work is very demanding, that's fair enough up to a point, but we begin to sort of neglect our Bible, we neglect uh, meeting with the other Christians and we drift from our great salvation. It's very easy to drift. In fact, it's quite pleasant drifting. All you have to do is to stop rowing if you're in a boat. All you have to do is to stop making any effort, stop steering the thing. Just drift, lie back doesn't require any positive personal effort to drift. It requires effort to keep going. You just go with the current. And I think we all do it at times. I think I do. I think I allow myself to drift a bit. I just uh, allow myself to ease up in my walk with God or the busyness or whatever and I can excuse it. And actually, at first, of course, drifting isn't particularly dangerous. But it is dangerous in the longer term. Because there are rocks, there are sand banks, we're using the nautical imagery, there are 
you know, if you're on a river, waterfalls or rapids or whirlpools and there are all sorts of things you can drift into. There are hazards in life. Let's take a moment. Are we, are, am I, let's, let's do a little rain check right now. Am, am I drifting? Are you drifting? How do you, how do you know? Well, are you conscious of an effort to keep moving forward in the things of God? Is it an effort? Or is everything fine? I'm very easy, very laid back, and no, it's no effort. Well, actually, I think if it's the second, I'm more worried. If it's a bit of an effort and a battle, that's good. Because the Christian life is swimming against the tide. It is rowing against the tide. It's going against the current. And if there isn't a bit of effort, if it isn't a bit challenging, if it isn't a bit, wow, I better, you know, this isn't always comfortable, then I'd be worried that you might be drifting if it's too easy. Let me ask you another question. Are the things of God getting clearer at least? Or are they even more important? You think, I really want to read this Bible. I'd love to understand things a bit more. I'd love to get a bit more involved with church. You know, Kevin's given that advert. I wonder if there's something I could do on Sunday morning. Are you, as it were, pushing forward a bit? Or are things fading? Have you almost not read, you touched your Bible for quite a while? And actually, church, well, take it or leave it. We're a bit lucky to see you this morning because it's a fine day and normally you might think, well, beach or something. And under grace, chilled out. Well, if you're in that second category, I reckon you might be in danger of drifting. Even if you're not doing as well as you'd like with sort of the Bible and going forward, you're bothered about that and you want to do something about it, that's good. Again, it's the effort. It's the rowing is going on. Otherwise, you're probably drifting. Now, the writer of the Hebrews was very concerned that the people he's writing to were going to drift from this great salvation. And he gives them a lot of warnings. They're pretty meaty warnings, actually, when you read through the book. We're not going to read any others this morning. I will refer to them. But he cares enough to be honest and heartfelt and to not pull any punches. And he warns them. And actually, the warning passages in Hebrews are some of the most uh, controversial and difficult passages in the New Testament. So I would be a bit of a mug and take them on, which is what I've done. I'm not going to do them all to you this morning. It's a little bit of a summary. And people struggle with quite how do we understand them. So let's talk about the warnings in Hebrews. There they are already up on the screen. I'm not going to read any of them. But there's quite a few that are quite meaty and quite challenging. And what is really, in some ways, confusing is that those warning passages telling you to be careful, and we'll briefly say what they're about in a moment, they also often closely linked, even in the same passage, with wonderful promises about how secure we are as a Christian and the certainty of everything God said he'll give us in Jesus. So people look at it and say, what's this about? It's absolutely full-on promises with really quite meaty warnings. So briefly in Hebrews 2, we won't turn to any of it, there's what we've seen, a warning not to drift away and so not escape, like our salvation should be giving us escape from God's judgement. Hebrews 3 and 4 is a warning not to harden your hearts against God's truth and then end up being unbelieving and sinful and uh, turning away from the living God and not finding your rest in Christ. Then when you get to Hebrews 5 and 6, it's a warning not to stay as an immature baby Christian but to grow up as a Christian and don't miss out on what God's got for you and don't fall away from salvation. In Hebrews 10, the warning is that if you deliberately and willfully keep on sinning, 
you are in effect treading underfoot the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. It's an insult to him and you'll end up judged as enemies of God. In Hebrews 12, there's a warning not to miss the grace of God. Don't miss out on it by refusing to listen to his word and to believe it and obey it and as a result end up missing out. They're serious, significant warnings. And if you are a serious Christian and you read them thoughtfully and carefully, they will leave you a little nervous. So, oh, I'm glad I came this morning. Yeah, I'm glad you came too. This is quite an important subject. And I love you enough to know that I don't want anybody to drift. And it's going to be okay. But, but we need to let it challenge us. They can make you feel a bit nervous and be a bit sobering. But as I say, they can leave you almost a bit confused. And if you read lots of commentaries, they often add to your confusion, which I found myself when I read them. Because they're all trying to explain, how do you get these promises that are so outstanding along with these very clear warnings? So I'm not going to go into detail on any one, but I am going to talk about what these warnings do and how we respond to them and what the answer is to them over the next few minutes. Now, actually, it's not just Hebrews that's got them. Here's a verse from Timothy, which again has the nautical theme. And Paul says this, writing, cutting in on the verse before, that you may fight the good fight of faith, or fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Let's just leave that up for a moment because we've got this drift thing in there, haven't we? Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. And he says you've got to fight the good fight, hold on to faith and a good conscience. That requires some degree of effort, it seems. Sometimes the Christian life feels like a fight. Has it ever felt like a fight to you? It often feels like a fight to me. I tell you, it is a fight. We're enemy territory. We're, as I say, going against the tide, not only the tide of uh, morality, but just intellectually. Just, you know, we, we live in a culture where... It's assumed that there isn't a God, really, broadly now. It's assumed that everything comes from meaningless, you know, chance-driven evolution. And oh, that's, a, that's a whole interesting subject. It's in my mind because I was doing a talk on it this week. But, but to be honest, we have to, that's, believing in a God and a creator, which I hasten to say is very respectable and support, can be supported by science, Believing in a creator and designer is not stupid. But in our culture, you can almost feel you're stupid. So there's all sorts of things that make it feel like a fight and an effort. Well, it is. So what? let's talk about these warnings. So I'm going to talk about the nature of warnings. And I hope this is where we can really dig in and learn. Because most of us, when we read these warnings in Hebrews, and most of the commentators too, try and get theoretical and philosophical straight away. And that's a bit of a danger. What do I mean by that? Well, you find all the time there are questions like this. Can I lose my salvation? How do these scriptural verses square up with other ones that tell me salvation is all of grace and a completely free gift? What is the exact state of a backslidden Christian? If I could lose my salvation, at what point do I lose it and can I regain it? Now, all of these questions will come to mind if you read these passages and certainly come to the minds of commentators. But I don't believe they're really what what it's meant to provoke. 
I say we're in very good company, just give you a couple of examples. Wayne Gruden, when he's going his commentary on, on some of these passages, writes this, were these people really saved in the first place? And if they were, does this passage prove that true Christians can lose their salvation? He's obviously going to go on to say no, by the way, but he realises that question must be explored, or so he says. And a fellow called McKnight, who I was reading, says, who are the subjects of this passage? Are they genuine believers, or are they false and pretentious believers? Now, there's many skilled commentators who tussle with these things, come up with some really complicated solutions, often quite helpful, as it happens, but I'm not sure that they really are getting what it's about. And I'll try and explain to you in a moment. But just to summarise, there's broadly two positions that people end up in. That the people in Hebrews were true Christians and you can lose your salvation. That's called the Arminian position. Or that these people had made false professions of faith, which looked pretty good, but were exposed by their falling away. And that's broadly a Calvinistic position. And if you push me, I'd say I was in that second category. But I don't think that's how you're supposed to go. You're not supposed to come to these passages to bring yourself an intellectual satisfaction straight away. Other people try other things. Some people writing about this say that Christians can suffer real loss of inheritance but not of eternal life. That's a bit harder, I think, to defend from this passage. Or others say, well, they're hypothetical. They never happen, which is slightly odd because if a, a warning is totally hypothetical, it's a bit meaningless. So let's try and work out what this is all about. I think the first thing is these were living words written by the living God to real living people in real living situations like you and me. They weren't written for a systematic theology. They aren't written as a philosophical treatise. They are real to real people, maybe like us, meeting and worshipping Jesus but also struggling with life and its temptations and challenges. I don't believe these warnings were written to cast doubt in the minds of sincere Christians that, oh, crumbs, am I saved? You know, start taking my pulse. I don't think they were written to fuel debate about what is the exact state of that person who used to come to church and doesn't now. Do you think they're saved? I don't think they were written to fuel that sort of debate. They were written as warnings, real warnings. Now, let's talk about warnings. Let's look at two warnings, Liz. Let's put the first one up. We couldn't get the middle bit off, we got it off the internet, but there you go. You may have seen one like this. Danger, cliff edge, stay out. It's not unusual to see something like that along, even, uh, along the cliffs beyond Eastbourne or certainly along uh, some of the cliffs there, Fairlight Way. Okay, let's put the next one up. I've certainly seen that one. Have you seen that one when you're driving around? I have, actually. Let's put the two up, Liz, so I can talk about them. They're a little bit smaller. I wanted you to make sure you could see them. Let's talk about warnings. Now, if you saw either of those warnings, what are wrong reactions to those warnings? I'm going to tell you. Here's a wrong reaction to those warnings. There is no danger whatsoever. There is no canal and there is no cliff edge. Therefore, I can drive as fast as I like and take no notice And when I'm walking on this cliff, indeed I won't walk. I will run with a blindfold on. I will run backwards. I will play blind man's buff or kiss chase or whatever they do these days. We will not even notice the warning because it's stupid and it never happens. It's totally unnecessary. 
Or you could say, death is a real possibility here. I am not going to go within half a mile of that cliff edge. You won't get me. I am going to hug right away. Or I'm driving along at 10 miles an hour, almost scraping my car against this cliff here because I'm not going anywhere near that edge. I am terrified. If I looked over into that canal, I bet it's full of rusting car wrecks all the way along. If I go over these cliffs, there's half decomposed bodies all the way along at the bottom. Broken bones. Hundreds of people have gone over there. I wouldn't even travel on that journey. I'm terrified. I'm frozen with fear. Or you could do, it's another bat, they're both wrong, it's another one. How near to the edge can I go without falling over? (laughs) I am going to drive my car right on the edge with the outer wheels right along. I'll see if I can get away with it. Or I'm going to walk, I'm going to dance on the edge, way on the cliff edge. Let's see how far we can go. Or, finally, you could say, with a knowledgeable nod, I heard of a person who went over and miraculously survived. They were taken to the hospital and they were patched up in a few weeks. It isn't that serious, don't worry about it, and you end up pretty well back with the first mistake. Because it's all right, if occasionally it happens, you can be patched up again, don't worry about it. Now, all of those are really foolish reactions to those signs. None of them is in harmony with the purpose of the warning. Remember, this is to talk about biblical warnings all the time. What's the real purpose of those warnings? This is it. The danger is real. Do not underestimate it. The warning is to try and ensure that no one goes over the edge. The purpose is not that some might fall over to justify putting a warning there. The object is that nobody goes over. Nobody wants anyone to crash or fall over. It is not even inevitable that some will go over and we don't need some to go over to make us sure that the sign is true or worth putting there. This picture, these pictures are not of what will inevitably happen to the car or to the person but it is of what could happen and it's to provoke your mind to think of possible consequences and so to drive carefully and walk carefully to provoke you to think about possible consequences. As I said, the truthfulness of the warning does not depend on that happening even once, let alone regularly. That's not how it functions. They are provoking you and making suppositions of what, if you do this, that could happen. Now, I would argue that the biblical warnings are exactly the same. They are to real people travelling a real journey. They are about how it is on the earth for us. Not what God knows about you and all that. They're what we see, what I see about myself and they are real. They are utterly real. Let's talk about the purposes of those warnings in Hebrews. The purpose is not to cast doubt in the minds of sincere Christians so they get neurotic and jittery. Can I trust the work of Jesus? Yes, you can trust the work of Jesus. Nor is it to fuel debate about other people. Oh, I bet they're not saved. It's not really about that. Actually, these warnings are part of God's grace to you. 
They are one of the ways God keeps you where he wants you to be, just as those signs are. They are actually a grace act. They're a kindness. They're a compassion. They're part of the grace of God that you might be kept safe and where you should be. They they sort of function as an ongoing extension of this call. There is only hope in Jesus Christ. If you put hope anywhere else, you have no hope. You must keep with him. There is no salvation outside of him. They are constantly pointing the road signs, like the road signs point you the safe way. These warnings point you the safe way. He is the ark in which you are saved. Imagine Noah building his ark. It wouldn't be much good to make all that effort to build it and just stand taking photographs of it and looking at it and putting a photograph on your wall. Noah, you've got to get in the thing and stay in it. That's how you're saved. And being a Christian is not just knowing about Jesus, taking nice pictures, thinking he's nice, I've got a nice verse on the wall. It's putting faith in Jesus and staying living by faith all through your Christian life. Staying in that ark, you might say. Keeping close to him all through your life. Now there are a lot of magnificent secure promises in Hebrews. Hebrews 6, which has got some of the most challenging warnings, clearest warnings, actually has a powerful statement of the certainty of God's promise that salvation comes in and through Jesus alone and in him you are secure forever and it's secured by God's covenant oath. How is it that these warnings and promises work together? Now when I was thinking about this the first time, I found what I'm about to do with you very helpful, so I hope it helped you. I didn't... A person I was reading pointed me to this and I found it helpful. This is using a real-life story in the Bible to illustrate how the warnings and the promises work together and keep us focused and safe in Jesus. And this is going to be using uh, uh, the story in Acts 27 where Paul has a shipwreck. So I'm going to... i put those references up. I'm going to, in fact, open up Acts 27, if you've got a Bible you can do the same and we're going to use it as an illustration how do these warnings and promises work together and how does it work out for me? <clears throat> now you need to, if you're not familiar with the Bible you need to know this is a real life, real history story Luke recorded it here in Acts 27 some totally secular historians would say that Luke's record of this shipwreck is the most accurate historical writing we've got about first century seamanship. It's wonderfully detailed, which is not what we're looking at this morning. So we're talking about a real story, but it illustrates something. Paul had been arrested, the Apostle Paul, and he was in chains, bound by the Romans, and guarded by a centurion and his soldiers. Paul was on a ship to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. Now they're sailing late in the year in the eastern Mediterranean which is a time of storms and Paul warns them before they set sail this is not a good time to sail we could well hit a storm and be shipwrecked. Ignoring his advice they sail on and a terrible storm hits the ship. Now actually God speaks to Paul about the whole thing and if we pick it up in Acts 27 uh, I'm going to read you verse 21, 26. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have 
would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Now listen, last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as, I have, as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. There's the promise. We are going to have be shipwrecked. We're all going to be saved. You've got to stay in the ship. We're going to run aground on an island. Now, as things hotted up and the storm got worse, some of the sailors wanted to jump off the ship. So if you pick up the story in 29, verse 29, fearing we were dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. So there is the warning in verse 31. Unless you stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Let's go on quickly. We find the promise reinforced in verse 34. Now I urge you, they're all getting very hungry, they're they're worried, they're cold, they're wet, whatever. And Paul says, now I urge you, take some food, you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And he keeps promising that and he, and he encourages them to eat. Let's go down to verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, ran aground, bow stuck fast, wouldn't move. The stern was broken by pieces of... Piece to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks and pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. The promise was completely fulfilled. Verse 31. That was the key warning. Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Was the warning serious? Yes, it was. Did the warning deny the promise? No, it didn't. Was the warning heeded? Yes, it was. Was the promise fulfilled? Yes, it was. And it's an illustration of our salvation. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ. And we need to take God's word seriously when he promises things, that salvation is found only in Jesus on the basis of his death and resurrection and only by grace in him. And that's the only place it's found. There's no other means of salvation. There's no other path to it. It's not by laws and rituals. It's not by doing other things. It's only in this way that you will be saved. Only in Jesus. And when God makes a promise, he doesn't just make a general promise, he gives you the means of promise, as in this story. You'll be saved if you stay on the ship right to the end and then the ship will run aground on an island and you'll be saved. The promise contains in it what we might call conditions or means of salvation. God promises the end and the means. 
The lives will all be saved through being on the ship and running aground on the island. Now listen, our salvation is the same. It's an end and it's the means to the end. God has said you can only be saved in Jesus Christ and through him. So when you get Christians writing, and you have nowadays, a guy called Rob Bell will love wins, sort of universalist stuff, that, you know, in the end, everybody can be saved. No, God's whole thing is the means are part of the promise. There is wonderful hope of total salvation, not a hair lost, if you will stay with God's promise in all its conditions. Stay in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone. And so when Paul warned them on the ship here, back on the ship, he warned them in the light of the promise. Now don't forget what God said, the promise was we'll be safe if we stay on the ship. And when he gave that warning, the centurion and the soldiers listened to that warning and thought, right, we won't let anybody off the ship. A, they'll die if they get off the ship. B, we we will struggle, perhaps they thought like that, because we're going to need the sailors in order to get us to run aground safely on the island. Whatever they thought, they basically responded to the warning, everybody's got to stay on the ship. So Paul issues a warning, don't let them off the ship, they won't be safe. Right, you cut the ropes, stay on the ship, that's the promise. Paul never speaks remotely of the promise failing. The promise will not fail. He simply keeps calling them to remember the promise. Get it? calling you, that's why you break bread and wine so often, that's why you need baptism. Remember it's Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. All through your life you need to be reminded of that. It's not Jesus and a load of other things. It's not, I'm okay, I once thought about Jesus, but I can do what I like. No, 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 stay with Jesus. That's the whole point, challenging you. Keep with Jesus, you've trusted him, he alone is the ark, he alone is the safety. Let's talk about quickly, just as we come towards the end really, how we apply that to our lives. It's the last sort of section I want to say. Because we can inevitably feel a little bit awkward or a bit challenged by this. We can feel intimidated. We can think about our own resources, our own willpower and think, well, are you saying it's all down to my effort, John? No, I'm not. I'm saying Jesus has promised to keep all committed to him. Let's look at this verse in John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has promised to keep you not by your strength but by his strength. He is the author and finisher of our faith. The same God who began a good work in you will complete it. Eternal life is a free gift and you have received it through faith in Jesus. He is faithful and he will keep those who are committed to him until that day. But you do stay with Jesus. In the real world, I don't know what goes on in your heart, you don't know what goes on in my heart. So it's not my place to judge you, but I can say to you with utter sincerity the only place I'm confident you're safe is with Jesus. Okay? I'm only confident when you're in the boat that it's all going to work, if you use the Paul analogy. And I won't say to you, well, if you've got a ticket to heaven from 20 years ago, I don't care how you behave now, I won't say that to you. The Bible doesn't give me freedom to say that to you. It says you've got to stay with Jesus. He is the only hope you have in life. Not your efforts, all of him. You hang on to him, like hanging on to a, to a boat being driven in a storm. You know, you're just hanging on to Jesus. 
whatever is going on. Now, we're aware of our weaknesses and failings. Sometimes I despair of myself, let alone you lot. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I despair of myself. So I think if it was down to me, I don't think I'd ever get there. It isn't down to me. The focus is not on me, it's on him. But it is him. It's not a blank. It doesn't like matter what I do. It does. I hold on to Jesus. So obviously you may say, well, John, if a lapsed Christian, and many of you will know them, we'll pray for them in a minute, a lapsed Christian, are they lost or saved? And it's a real question, especially their friends and relatives. But I don't think it's your role to say. It is not your role to make a judgment on it. And actually, I'm not sure it's a biblical type question. A Christian can take backward steps, can be hindered, can be trapped, can be stumbled. We can find all of that in the New Testament. And do you know what our job should be when we see that happening? It is not to try and sort out their final destiny. It's not to try and work out are they saved or are they lost? This is what we do. Look at James 5. Can you put it up, please? The next verse, James 5. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We're not really... We're just saying, pray for them, love them and try to win them back to Jesus. Not worrying about are they, where are they, You need to just say to them, you need to be back with Jesus. You need to get right with Jesus. And we'll pray and we'll work as best we can to encourage them. That's a great verse from James for this subject. If one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover cover over a multitude of sins. And you say, well, John, if they come back, if someone appears, I've seen this happen, of course, someone drops out the Christian race and then they rejoin it, were they always born again? Well, possibly, yep. Or were they just superficial and then when they were backslidden, they came to real faith? Yep, possibly. Honestly, I don't know, only God knows. Is that right? That's true. I think it's quite possible to be a real Christian and to get quite a long way back. And God, you won't have a happy time and God will bring you back, you'll get back. I think it's quite possible some of us mess about and don't really mean it and then we turn our back on it and things go wrong and then we get to really mean it. But only God really knows. But our response must be the same. We try with prayer and with love and with words to say, don't wander from the truth. Don't drift away. You'll go over a cliff. Don't do it. And that is how we're meant to be. And it's not just the job of the pastor. Let's put one last, well, it's the second to last verse up. Look at this. Let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Spur one another on. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. This is stuff we do for each other, brothers and sisters. This is not like, well, this is Paul and Santino, I I wonder what they're doing about that backslidden person. No, no, we encourage one another. We we encourage, don't give up meeting together. Pray for each other. When you're going off the boil as a Christian, and you do, the last thing you should do is run away from God or away from God's people. You might not feel very bright, but you need to run towards them. 
You need to run towards God. God, I'm, I feel the sky's like brass, but Lord, I do believe in you and I'm crying out to you. Or come to church. Be honest. Be honest in a small group or being prayed for. So I'm in a terrible state. I don't know what I'm doing really, but I just know I need to find peace with God again or Jesus. Don't be embarrassed to say I'm struggling, but don't run away. That's the wrong direction. That's what the devil wants you to do. Run back. And all of us are part of gathering people back and taking heed to this ourselves. So, my last sentence almost is the verse I started with. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. See, the answer to drifting away is not a new fad and a new activity. I need something to make me more interested. You don't. You don't need somebody to tickle your fancy, whatever that means, better be careful these days. You... What you need is to pay careful attention to what you've already heard. You know the promise is in Jesus Christ. You know the gospel. You need to rededicate yourself to it, to come back and focus carefully on Jesus. Don't be careless. Don't be fearful. But don't be reckless either. Allow the Holy Spirit to challenge you sometimes and run back to him. And this really is the last verse as we'll move into breaking bread. Look at this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's all about him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, actually, God knows it's easy to grow weary, it's easy to lose heart, actually, it's easy to drift away. God's not just angry, God's compassionate. It, because he knows it's easy to fall over the cliff, he's warning you, don't do it, and there's grace not to do it. It's not just your, you know, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Not like, well, I haven't done very well, I sinned last night. Yeah, yeah, that's not the issue. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you sin, confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. We're not talking about your performance. That's another way we always go on this. Oh, I'm not perfect. No, that's why Jesus had to die for you, you wally. You're not perfect. (laughs) That's the point. If you were perfect, he wouldn't have had to bother, would he? You're not perfect, you're a shambles. In yourself, you're hopeless. You want me to say it again? You're nothing. (laughs) Scripture says that. In yourself, you're nothing. But he loves you, and in him, you've got everything. Isn't that wonderful? You know, and actually, I am, in the end, totally dependent on his grace. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, because I can grow weary and lose heart. Yep, there is a danger of drifting away, but I don't have to drift away. I cling to Jesus. It's not, not just I, 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 I try and perform better, I cling to Jesus. Even when I've made an absolute mess of it, like Peter had when he let Jesus down and swore he didn't know Jesus. And Jesus, Do you know what it's all about? You probably know the story, some of you. John 21, Jesus said, do you love me? Isn't that funny? Jesus didn't say, he didn't want a great long apology from Peter. He said, do you love me, Peter? Peter said, yeah, well, you know, my, you know everything. You know I love you. Said, right, now we can get on. That's honestly what happened. It's not about a great long, oh, I should have tried to be more self-controlled when that girl said, no, it's rubbish. It's, do you love me? Are you back with me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I love you. That's what it's about. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus. And there's no better way of doing it than with the bread and wine. I don't know how you... Can I, I sort of organise it, shall I? I don't know how you do it normally. But um, <clears throat> I do feel that this is the way I want us to respond in the last five or ten minutes. I want us to respond with the bread and wine. And I think there's probably a couple of things that we need to do as we take bread and wine. I think one is we ourselves, individually, need to make sure we keep short accounts with God. You may have got a little bit cold. You may have drifted a bit recently. Please use this as an opportunity to rededicate yourself to Jesus. Not about your performance, oh, I'll try harder, but say, Jesus... I am so sorry I've let you down. I thank you your blood cleanses me from all sin. I thank you that you are sufficient for all my needs. Restate personally your faith in Jesus. When you take that bread and when you take that wine, restate your faith in Jesus. That's what it's all about. You are my only hope. Lord, if I had got hope in you, I've got no hope. These are all true do you, you know, I know you're nodding, do you understand? But I really want to say, I want you to do business as you take the bread and wine. If you're not a Christian, and one or two of you here this morning might not be, you can easily come in to this great salvation we've been talking about and know total peace with God and know hope for the future and know his hand is on you day by day. And I, in a moment, as we give thanks to the wine, before we do that, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer which you could pray if you really, really mean it, if you really mean it, you could take bread and wine for the first time, but you must promise me you will tell someone after the morning that you did it. So I asked Jesus into my life, I took bread and wine saying, Jesus, be my Lord, be my Saviour, and I want to tell, you must tell someone. That will seal it, telling someone. It's not just a little nod to something. If you don't want to take the bread and wine or you don't feel ready to pray this prayer, it's much more honouring for you not to take it. So don't take it, just leave it. Nobody's going to complain. In fact, we'll respect that. Because it's only meaningful if you put faith in Jesus. That's the only thing that gives it meaning, really. It's just a little symbol, isn't it? So that, that leave that aside if it's not for you. But you could come into the, his kingdom this morning. So we're going to, in a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to do bread and wine. The first thing I'm going to pray is that simple prayer. If you want to become, let's all close our eyes. If you wanted to become a Christian this morning, you can use these words yourself. If you really mean it, you are welcome to take the bread and wine and please tell somebody afterwards, Santino or somebody you know here in the church. This is the prayer I think you should pray if you want to meet Jesus this morning. Thank you, God, for loving me before I ever loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you, Jesus, that I can get connected to you now, today, because you are alive. I admit that I have lived my life without you and have messed up. I ask you for total forgiveness and I commit myself to you, Lord Jesus. Help me to submit my life to your teaching and your direction from now on. I receive you into my life this morning and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen.
Now, if you really meant that, you could use that bread and wine as a ceiling to God, privately, if you like, and then tell somebody else. Now, for the rest of us. Lord, I, I just thank you for this bread and this wine. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It reminds us that the magnificent promises we have are all yes and amen in Jesus. Lord, I thank you I'm in you and I want to stay in you, Lord. I keep staying in you. Lord, I fix my eyes on you. Lord, I know I've often let you down. I know I often disappoint myself, let alone you. But I thank you that you always forgive. You keep me in your hands. No one can snatch me out of your hands. I know you are my hope. You are my saviour. You are my rescuer, my Lord, my deliverer. And I love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Amen.